0: Welcome to the Morning Dove podcast. I'm so glad that you are here. In this space, I hope to normalize the grief journey while amplifying stories of loss. I believe that listening to each other's stories brings validation, empathy, and an increased understanding of foreign perspectives. By providing a window into the loss community, it is my hope that you will feel seen, heard, and deeply loved. Now on to the episode. Hi friends, and welcome to another episode of The Morning Dove. I am so excited to share with you my conversation with my friend Danielle. Danielle and I met through mutual friends um, just in the stillbirth space, and she is a mother to three children who are no longer with us. Danielle is also one of the founding members of the Star Legacy Foundation's San Francisco chapter. She also heads a Instagram page and website called The Invisible Mama, which offers a window into uh, child loss, as well as some really great information and tools for moms. So definitely go and check her out. She offers a lot of information about the grief space and more specifically, pregnancy loss, and baby death. So here is my conversation with Danielle. Hi, Danielle. Hi, Allie. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm really looking forward to this
1: conversation.
0: I am really looking forward to this conversation too. Thank you so much for just taking the time to share your story and for us to talk. I really appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. I think it's um a healing experience for everyone involved so I'm all I'm all for it
0: yeah I absolutely agree I think every time I get the chance to talk to another lost mom or just any time that I get the chance to like tell Hank's story it just um you know we we don't get a lot of opportunities to talk about our kids and so it's nice to be able to do that with you
1: exactly I couldn't agree more
0: cool Well, if you would like, I would love uh, just to start with your story and your journey, learn more about you and your life and about your kids.
1: Sure. Um, well,
0: I am
1: a pediatric school-based occupational therapist, and I work in the special ed department um, at a public school. And so, um... I work a lot with families who are actually grieving various things in their life, um, grieving the loss of the neurotypical idea they had of their child, um, yeah. just kind of coming to terms with their child's diagnosis. So, um, kind of dealing and processing with grief has been a part of my career which in a way prepared me for my journey to motherhood. Um, I had met my husband um, almost seven years ago, and it was like the, it has been and still is the perfect relationship for us. Um, we're an amazing team, and... Um, From the very beginning, life is just easy together. Um, A lot changed when we actually tried to start our family. Uh, It took a long, long time for us to get pregnant our first time with Stevie. And right away, there were complications with that pregnancy. A lot of spotting and touch and go, restricted growth and things like that. And um, towards the end of the first trimester, I I did um, have a miscarriage with Stevie, which was a very traumatic experience. No one really prepares you for what a miscarriage actually is. Um, It Unfortunately, we were in Italy when it started. And then we went to the East Coast on our way back to his parents' house, and instead of staying a week, we got right back on the plane and flew home because I had um, actively started miscarrying. And um, while it was helpful to be home once we got there, um, the transit was horrible. I ended up losing Stevie while we were on a plane, and oh my gosh, um, the recovery was really emotionally and physically difficult. Um, It devastated my husband, Mike and I, we um, had a really hard time processing our grief. Um, But granted, we had no idea what we were doing. And we ended up going right back to work right away as soon as we got home. And um, that definitely was not (laughs) helpful for us. Um, But, you know, we we were just trying to put one foot in front of the other. And um, we started attending hand meetings, which is um, healing after neonatal death. And at first I felt like an imposter being there because, you know, at the time there were so many parents there that had what seemed like more traumatic or worse grief than my hours, but I have come to learn that, and my husband says this a lot, um, that we are not in the grief Olympics. No Mm. one, nobody wins (laughs) at grief. So it's, what, however it's affecting you is your truth and being okay with it and not judging yourself um, because we tend to minimize miscarriage um, and even infant loss where people, don't understand think oh it's a some cells or it was meant to be or all of those kind of comments but in our eyes it was a loss of the future in our dreams that we had already made for this child so um that was really tough and then um right away we got pregnant with our son jude and that was a very uneventful pregnancy. Um, he was hitting all his milestones. I remember at the growth scan, they said he was exactly in the 50th percentile and we were cheering. (laughs) And, um, the doctors kind of thought we were a little crazy that like, we weren't striving for the 90th percentile, but 50 (laughs) is right in the middle. We'll take a very average baby. Um, so, uh, That was, you know, I was really sick the first 26 weeks, and um, I was totally okay with it because I knew that it was Jude's way of telling me that he's here, and he wasn't going anywhere, and leading up to my due date, his due date was November 18th. Um, That day, we went in for uh, just a regular checkup and the OB let Mike put the Doppler on my belly for the heart rate and everything seemed okay. But I, I noticed a change in the rhythm of the heart rate, but my husband doesn't seem to remember it that way. So, um, I don't know, just deep down, I felt like something might not have been right then. Um, A few days had gone by, my labor had started and stopped and started and stopped. And it was the 22nd um, of November, and I started some full-blown labor. I labored through the night, and I let Mike sleep. I was really feeling very um, powerful because I was doing it. I was laboring on my own. And yes, it was early labor, but I was so motivated and I just felt so connected. Mm -hmm. My dog stayed right beside me the whole time. And um, I was laboring in Jude's room. And finally, I woke my husband up and I said, Hey, you know, I think it's, it's time. So we called the hospital. And the first thing she asked was, when's the last time you felt the baby move? And I had been told in the past, which is absolutely false, that babies slow down yeah, towards yeah. the end. That that doesn't that's not right. Um, and I had told myself, oh, he's just getting ready for labor. Um, so sometime in between, when my labor finally started, and when we got to the hospital, Jude had passed. Um, 36 hours later, he was born, um, and we were, it was very, that was another very traumatic experience. There are many layers to it that I'm still unpacking and unfolding and understanding and trying to integrate all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, We were very, very fortunate to have a cuddle cot and what that is, is it's a cooling device. It's a cooling mat that you can lay the infant on. And it has a, cra- a little cradle. And we were able to spend five and a half days with Jude after he was born. And our my parents and my brother and my aunt and my cousin and my sister-in-law, they all got to meet Jude, um, got to dress him and hold him and tell him stories. We have tons of videos and pictures and, um, you know, it'll never be enough, Mm -hmm. but talking to other parents and it's not that we're lucky because we all have left the hospital without our children, but we were able to do at least that with Jude. And, you know, it was, Uh, I you can't compare this type of loss to anything else in life, so it's really hard to help people understand the obliteration of your life after all of this, and how the pieces don't come back together like they were once were, and um, so it's been a lot of. Um, self-work that we have been doing um and thankfully i was fortunate enough i donated 140 gallons of jude's we called it jude's gold but it was um our his breast milk and i um was able to feed two children for 11 months and um that was key in my recovery and healing Um, And around 11 months, we decided to try again, and we got pregnant right away, but the doctor classified that as a chemical pregnancy um, because within a couple, a week, so I think I was barely even six weeks, I miscarried again. So um, it's been really difficult because there's no reason all three of these losses and typically when you get genetic workups and things like that you have to have three successive losses however my losses are in three separate categories so it it doesn't qualify I'm still I'm still considered very healthy fertile no issues just bad luck so um yeah it's been it's been a, a tough road um I feel that sharing the stories of my children have really, it, it makes them real and um, it creates a legacy for them. So I'm always happy to share about that.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I have a question for you. I don't know if you feel similarly, but I feel that there's so much of this that could be prevented Um, there's so much, you know, I think it, I mean, I'm not a doctor and I don't have any medical background, but it really does feel like there's an opportunity for research. Do you feel similarly? I mean, just when you said like that, you are just seen as someone who has bad luck. It's like, obviously there's no reason for this, but do you feel like more research could be done? in this
1: area? Absolutely. Um, that was one of the main reasons why um, a group of parents and I started um, the San Francisco chapter of the Star Legacy Foundation. And um, it's a very all-encompassing foundation but the, the bulk of it is um, research. Mm-hmm. So um, the funds we raise go towards Um, funding researchers to collect data. They're collecting their own stillbirth research study, and that's collecting hundreds and hundreds of data points on patients' history. And then we're hoping to kind of compile that and have researchers use that data to analyze some causes. But I can tell you that already the... A lot of stillbirths could be prevented by simple things like measuring the placenta and looking at the ratio between the placental volume and the fetal weight. And, you know, there's a certain ratio where it becomes dangerous. Um, that's mm-hmm. never. That's not a typical protocol. It can be easily done at the anatomy scan. Um, kick counts are, you know, a lot of times, uh, doctors just say, Oh, are you doing your kick counts? And there's no in depth education on the importance of it and yes. <laughs> what you're looking for. It's just like, Oh, are you doing your kick counts? It's like, Yeah, sure. Okay. I, I counted 15 kicks, but what's the quality? What's the rhythm? You know, what's the frequency? Is there a pattern? You know, and all these things are easily done with just some patient education. So it's not real uh medical tools that need to be developed or purchased for hospitals um these are very simple patient um education type materials that can easily be done during prenatal visits
0: yes i had also heard the myth that they run out of room and that their movement goes down for me i was 32 weeks so i was like it kind of seems early and I had also been really active. So I was like, oh, well, maybe he isn't moving because, you know, I've been moving around. But it's like, no, your baby, even if I think, even if you've been moving around by the end of the day or at some point in time, your baby's going to move. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it didn't even like enter my mind as a problem until much later, you know, is. A problem,
1: I, yeah, definitely. And um, the this is an, that that case in point where uh, it needs to be spelled out more mm-hmm. so than kick counts um, because babies are active. Doesn't matter, you know. There are different personalities with the babies where they have different schedules and routines, but babies move constantly. And um, that's something that needs to be really instilled in these parents while they still can prevent something horrible, like a stillbirth.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I had actually participated in that stillbirth study. Um, It took me like a half an hour and it was honestly really healing for me too. It was more than just, you know, like, oh, here I'm entering in this information as a part of a study, but it was like, kind of empowering in a way. And it, it was really special and helpful for me.
1: That's really great to hear. And, and the, um, the founder, Lin- Lindsay Wimmer, she is, um, she's a um, a nurse practitioner, but mm-hmm. she's been a nurse for many years as well. And um, that that's her goal is to just really empower parents. And, and you can tell by the the questions that are asked and, um, yeah, I'm I'm really glad to hear that that was healing for you. Um, because it is, it's like, there's something that you can be doing to make this better.
0: Yeah.
1: And because there's not a whole lot you can do now. (laughs) And so the things you can do hold a lot of weight.
0: Yeah. And I think that might've been sort of a similar thing for you with the milk donation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, there's a lot of, um, identity questioning where, I you know, mother, this is very common with mothers in laws that you can't see my baby. Therefore I'm not a mother and, mm-hmm. um, being able to nurture other children and, um, continue giving in a way that, um, keeps Jude's, story relevant was, was incredibly important for me, and still is.
0: Yeah, I think that's amazing. I, um, I didn't know about milk donation right away. I had already started um, trying to dry up my milk. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's, it's really awesome that parents have that opportunity and i agree i think having the opportunities to do things that you know make us that that validate us as mothers is such an important aspect of this type of loss because i still you know feel like a mom but my son's not here so i'm not actively parenting but being able to have those moments is really special
1: Yeah, I think having the opportunity and also be given a choice. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I've talked with a lot of nurses after and a lot of um, labor and delivery related staff on milk donation and they're like, oh, you know, it's kind of taboo and we don't want to offend or step on toes, but stillbirth is a stigma and a ta- taboo just in itself and we have to make the most horrific decisions when we're in the hospital you know do you, you know are you going to do an autopsy are you going to cremate or embalm your child these are all horrible forced choices that we have to do and and just to give some autonomy to a parent of, look, your milk is going to come in. Here are your options, and so that way you have that sense of control out of some, with anything that comes with stillbirth, because you don't really have any kind of control. And I no, just think okay. that that is much more empowering. Now, I you know, I wouldn't say that milk donation was an easy duty, um, mm-hmm. and not all, all, not all moms want to, um, but to have that option, and instead of just, this is how it's going to be, um, can be really empowering and very healing for, for the parents.
0: Yeah. What has been your experience with sort of the taboo nature of both miscarriage and stillbirth? Um, For me personally, I was very blessed to have very understanding, like close circle. Um, And it's really outside of my circle that I had different experiences, but I'd love to hear how that was for you.
1: Yeah, I, um, my experience has been a a mixed bag. Um, For me, uh, talking about my children is something that brings me comfort, but I know that in our culture, collectively talking about death on top of babies dying is just something that people don't even want to know exist. And that part has been very difficult with regarding, um, how certain people in my circles have responded to all of this. Um, I will say that a lot of people surprised me for the better. There were a Mm -hmm. lot of people who were just my acquaintances or colleagues who completely stepped up. Oh, and family members that I hadn't, like cousins that I hadn't really had a lot of contact with just because time and life events, nothing um, that would separate us by choice, but they really stepped up and they still continue to. But I've had, you know, my very, one of my closest friends, someone who I thought was going to be in my life forever, she was a maid of honor in my wedding, um, could not. She just could not talk about my loss, and the grief because it was too hard for her. <laughs> and that that's the part that makes me very angry is that when people are not willing to yeah. be uncomfortable for maybe 20 minutes of their life, they cannot do that while I'm living this and breathing this for the rest of my life. And, and that has been really heartbreaking, I would say, and disappointing. Um, I was not expecting that from, from certain people, but you know, there, you can't, grief really kind of shakes off the, the excess, the people who may have not really been the people. I mean, they weren't bad people, but perhaps they weren't bringing anything to the table. Mm, So it kind of weeded them out. Um, And and the hard part is people who don't or cannot acknowledge the loss, not even once, and they can um, pretend like nothing has happened. That's been one of the hard things for me where people just... um, talk to me as if my children never existed and it was only me who imagined them. And, you know, that, that's been, that's been a really big piece that I've been tackling right now um, at this point, which, you know, just feeling disappointed, but knowing that there's nothing that can be done and just trying, trying to move on and focus on the people who, are genuinely there and present and willing to be uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, I think, yeah, I I remember what you said earlier, Where you said, like, you can't really compare this type of loss with anything else. Like, it's so unique. And I think there is really something to our culture's, f- not even fear of death, but just d- desire for it to kind of not be talked about. And then especially like baby death seems so oxymoronic because it's like, you're not supposed to birth death. Like that's just not supposed to happen. So I think even more so it becomes something that people like can't even go there in their minds. And it's like, you no, know, if you just truly have empathy you will try <laughs> and be awkward. And that, you know, at least try to sit with me rather than, you know, just, you know, try to avoid it completely because yeah, I, I picture grief as sort of this like weight and like some days it's the weight of a marble and some days it's like a boulder. And if someone else is willing to walk with me in it, they're kind of, we're both carrying it for a little while. And that just makes it a little bit lighter for me.
1: Yeah. Not, not feeling as isolated and alone Yeah. in, in this. Um, we, we have done our culture such a disservice by sweeping grief under the rug because everyone's going to be touched by it. We are mortal. Yeah. And um, it can't, it can only be avoided for so long and Instead, and, and no, I don't think anyone, if they really knew, would wa- want to hurt somebody in grief. Um, but their actions are very harmful and hurtful. Um, you know, we've just kind of, like, fulfilled this, like, cycle of ignoring the grief changing the subject, telling people to focus on the positive and all of that stuff is not, is not helpful for anyone. It just kind of relieves that support person a little bit, kind of like lessens the burden. But yeah, um, I I will say that till my last breath, I will be talking about grief and trying to normalize it as part of our experience. Um, I have seen actually, you know, working with children and talking to my niece and nephews. um, You know, they're still in that sponge stage to where they're really listening to what you have to say. And they're really trying to figure things out. And I've been so open and honest with them. And (laughs) their responses, honestly, have been the most healing. The way they've embraced Jude and Stevie and how they talk about them and incorporate them into their lives now. It's been the most comforting and I would have never expected it to come from my five-year-old nephew, 11-year-old niece and 14-year-old nephew. I mean, it's just insane. Um, But you know, they haven't had the culture um, brainwashing about don't talk about it because it's awkward and painful.
0: Yeah that's so cool. Um, it's yeah. yeah, just super neat to hear like, um, children are amazing and yeah, their, their abilities are cool. Um, I wanted to ask you, so when you had had Stevie, you know, I was in the same boat with miscarriage. I actually, this is not funny, but it, like is to me now because I have a messed up sense of humor but I thought I was having a miscarriage with Hank at like six weeks because um I had a little bit of blood I had no understanding of what a miscarriage really was like and because nobody really talks about it Did you, do you feel like if we talked more about miscarriage that women would be a little bit better equipped on like the medical side of things?
1: Absolutely. Um, Talking about potential risks and giving the data is so helpful. I think a lot of times, and, and I've heard this from some professionals, that they don't want to upset the pregnant woman, but they don't want to scare her. And it's like, this: she's pregnant, not disabled. Right. She, <laughs> she, you, you know, you talk about, like, you know, because when you do genetic testing, you talk about, like, the trisomy 18 and Down syndrome and all of that stuff. We can talk about that. And SIDS, but we can't talk about miscarriage and what that looks like. And you know, minimizing it. I was told, oh, it's just like a big period. No. Yeah. It was it was like a mini labor. I bled for six weeks. I had to go back in for procedures. It was not this like period, you know, it was it was very painful. And it that, you know, my experience was a little bit, a little bit out of the realm of normal, but it was still within reason. Um, Really explaining that to women and how to take care of their bodies during that time is really helpful. I mean, I was just taking um, ibuprofen or something. And then by the time I had entered the emergency department, they were the the ED specialist was actually, uh, OB. She was like, Oh, absolutely not. You need real pain beds, real pain control. And so she, you know, she prescribed me appropriately and it made all the difference. It was just like unnecessary suffering. Um, I feel, and you know, this has been going on since babies have existed. This is not not a new phenomenon and, um, We need to treat it as such. Just like we talk about cancer and diabetes and, you know, heart disease. It's, we all know so much about it, signs and symptoms of a heart attack and all of these things that we, we should be equipping parents with what all the different types of, not, I know there are so many outcomes with pregnancy, but miscarriage is kind of a, it's one in four. So it's, it's pretty common. Um, I feel.
0: Yeah. I even kind of feel like we should just get rid of the whole 12 week rule. Um, and obviously it's like whatever any parent wants. But once I, um, went to the doctor for this pregnancy, she was like, (sighs) you know, my doctor was like, you know, obviously don't tell anyone until you get to 12 weeks. And in my head, I'm like, why, you know, <laughs> it's like, so that I have to hide that my second baby died, like, no, if I miscarry, you know, I'm going to want my close friends and family to support me. And like, that doesn't mean that I need to announce it on Instagram, like the day that the stick, you know, has the two lines, but I just feel like that whole 12, like, Oh, wait 12 weeks. You know, it just kind of perpetuates this idea that women are meant to like grieve their miscarriage in private. And it's not meant to be public at all. I
1: couldn't agree more. I mean, really there is no real reason to withhold information for the first 12 weeks. Um, and, and it should just be your choice. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, you think for me, I'd only told a few people about Stevie and there was some shame in, in, in sharing that I had miscarried. Um, but I also had support from people. They knew what was happening and I wasn't as alone if I had, you know, hadn't told them. And also, you know, 12 weeks is just like an arbitrary <laughs>
0: it <really> number. Is.
1: <laughs> it's like, it's minimizing the life. I know people, I am very much pro-choice, but for myself, a life is a life, no matter how small. Um, I think we should have the, the freedom to feel that and believe that if that's how we're feeling about a miscarriage and... Yeah. That 12 week thing is just, it's just old news. Yeah. It's like, it's like a wives' tale, just like the decrease in movements. It's, yeah. it's not.
0: And it also just gives women like a false sense of security too of yeah. like, Oh, well I, yeah. made it, I made it to the 12 weeks. So now everything's fantastic. It's like, no, now there's still a bunch of shit that can go wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: like, <laughs> yeah. And you know, one in every 160 births result in stillbirth and imagine the shock if you've never had a miscarriage you've never experienced anything how much that does not compute to, in your mind when you have a stillbirth when that happens because you were so ill equipped with yeah. Yeah. everything it's just it's just so it's so traumatizing, I feel unnecessarily. Yes.
0: yes. I feel very similarly. And especially with like the one in 160 number, I think when we like compare that to all the things we are warned about, like SIDS and, you know, what's it called, Listeria. Mm-hmm. And then also when you put the one in 160 in terms of how many uh, pregnancies a family might have you know, it's like, yeah, it's not just one in 160 women, it's one in 160 births, right, so So. it, yeah, it's like if a woman has four births, and those chances go up way more,
1: yeah, and um, the SIDS foundations have done an excellent job in getting the word out, and really normalizing the preventative measures, you know, you see all those onesies that say back to sleep and like mm-hmm. it's very clear and that's a very basic preventative measure. Um, annually, though, there are twice as many stillbirths than SIDS accidents. And <laughs> that's that's huge. It's like se- I think it's like 70 to 75 babies die every day from stillbirth. And that's only gone up wow. by thirty. That's yeah, it's a lot, and it's gone up by thirty percent since the pandemic. So yes, it's just <laughs> it's 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 time to normalize stillbirth and miscarriage, just like we were able to do with SIDS and other childhood disorders.
0: Um, yeah, I couldn't yeah. agree more. I mean, I remember hearing about SIDS before having a kid was even on my radar. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I didn't even know what the word stillbirth was when it was happening to me. Like, it's like obviously, it's time for change.
1: Uh, so many moms say that too, and it's just, I um, our mutual friend had said that too, where she was like, "What do you even call this?" When she was yeah. in the hospital, like, what, how, what, what is this? And you know, it's just, it's not. It's not fair to her that she that and the other mothers that they're just so in the dark about it
0: yeah, yeah. um I want to talk a little bit about like medical terminology um we had talked about miscarriage and how just I I feel so much for you being in that hand meeting and feeling like you weren't like justified in being there. I had another mom reach out to me and she had a loss at 19 weeks. And she was like, I feel like, oh, because mine isn't, you know, technically a stillbirth. It was right on that cusp that I'm not validated. And it was just a miscarriage. I feel like there's a lot of things that need to change medically in terms of I mean, we could go into women's health and just in general, but um, I think, you know, medical terminology might be one where I feel like if someone listening to this podcast is in the medical community, maybe they can see that some of these terms are actually painful for us as patients.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. And I would, I would go as far as saying that these terms are outdated, Mm -hmm. Uh, the you know miscarriage there was no error in the way that I was growing this baby and if I had a say you better believe I would have done something to stop it and that's where it's like the miscarriage is like the blame is placed on the mother yeah just by that just that word alone um it says it's, as, it's a, like a failure when it's anything but, um, and you know at that is exactly as you were saying. This mother who lost a baby at 19 weeks is feeling like it didn't count when that was a a human life, and that was her future and her dreams and her family, and so many other facets to the experience that are being minimized just by using the word miscarriage or my favorite is fetal demise um with, with stillbirth it is it helps nobody um even if you wrote that in a chart it 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 doesn't help anything and That's like the one word, one term that I cannot justify or allow in my life. Um, And, you know, it's, it's outdated. Same thing with miscarriage, you know, but then again, it's like, oh, well, it can be like your own personal preference because I've had friends who've had stillbirths. They've also had miscarriages and it didn't affect them the way it affected me. So Hmm. There's that personal experience. But um, I think continuing with the term, especially miscarriage, is just not supportive in any way. And I feel like for me, I say, a lot of times I say pregnancy loss. Yeah. Yeah. um, Because the pregnancy ended. Mm-hmm. And I don't say stillbirth. I typically say my son died because it's it's a horrible thing to say. But that's what happened. He was yep. alive. He was a baby. He was a human. He was my family, and he died. And that's hard for people to hear. But that's, it. it yeah, it's that awful. So, um, just yeah, it's it's hard to for me to to say anything other than that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think even, uh, what's the term incompetent cervix. Oh yeah. It's like, what, why do we have to put the blame on the mom? Like my cervix isn't incompetent. I didn't miscarry, you know, I, none of these things are my fault. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a a huge opportunity for compassion for, women and families and anyone who is starting a family and they, we don't need these outdated terms. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, The
1: incompetent cervix one is really hurtful. It really
0: is. There's another one that I can't remember. And it's like, I, I just, I mean, it annoys me so much. I just, am like, I, when I get really annoyed, I just laugh at like how, stupid. Yeah, I know. I Yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, Is there anything that you would want to tell? So let's just say you had a bunch of OBGYNs in front of you and you had the opportunity to tell them about your experience and the research that you've seen. What would be some of the things that you would want to tell them?
1: Uh, I would say this is not just a medical anomaly. This mm-hmm. is A catastrophic event in a family's life and each person's experience is unique Um, we all grieve differently there's no right or wrong way some grieve louder than others and it's not don't pathologize that and put a label on it as having a mental health issue um, look deeper It's grief. Um, and also when you can provide the families with a choice, Mm -hmm. even the littlest things. And I know people don't want to overwhelm the families, but a or B, which one it's not, you know, here's a whole platter of choices, um, to let them stay in control of this experience. Um, you know, even when it comes to like simple things like pain management, yeah, you know, giving the mother a choice—that um, can happen, and and it should happen where there's an opportunity. So yeah, I think that's the biggest takeaway for me is to is choice, yeah, and really really grasp the 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 gravity of this type of loss.
0: Yeah, because. I feel like the term fetal demise and just the feeling I get from a lot of doctors I've seen is like, oh, well, that pregnancy failed. It's just, it's not, it's like a goal. It's not like a baby and it's not my life and family. And I did receive a lot of compassion from my doctor and my nurses, like when Hank died. But it, the aftermath, especially being pregnant after loss, of kind of comparing the two pregnancies and looking at that one as like a failure and looking at this one as like, oh, I literally had a doctor tell me like, well, I don't think lightning's going to strike twice. And it's like, no, you don't know that. And I'd rather hear you say all the things that you're going to do to take my life and my family seriously, (laughs) you know?
1: Yeah. That's a very dismissive comment. I don't see
0: that doctor anymore.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think that's, that's the really important thing for families to know is that doctors aren't the end, you know, they aren't the ultimate deciders of your future, you can always change them because they are still human, and they're they may not be as well versed in pregnancy after loss or, um, you know, the the vast variety of issues, um, and don't feel bad about it, you know, no. because they experience it all day. Nurses, especially therapists, I've experienced it myself where it just wasn't a match we weren't, you know, we weren't in sync and they went to another person. And I think that's the best thing you can do because that's another, another thing where you can be in control of too.
0: Yeah. That was a hard decision for me. I made that decision halfway through. Well, not halfway, but like, I think I was at like 16 or so weeks and I decided to switch and I was like, yeah, I was nervous of what my doctor would think. And she was so wonderful and like understanding. And I was like, I just, I need to deliver at a different hospital. And I had lots of other reasons why, but it's like, once I made the switch, I started seeing people who were much better first in pregnancy after loss. Mm -hmm. And it was such a relief. (laughs)
1: Like, Yeah. Yeah, all, All that unnecessary stress and worry. You know, oh, we're, yeah. able, we're able to get rid of it. And and that's, that's powerful. It you know? really it's, is. So yes. I'm glad you did that. And I, and I hope that anyone hearing this knows that 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 is an option and it is okay.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. As a hairdresser, I know that there are people <laughs> who have not liked the way I did their hair and they went to see somebody else and that was totally Okay. <laughs>
1: exactly <laughs> you know that's that's a perfect example of it it's just like,
0: how easily do you change hairdressers well you can do the same with everything else in your life you literally can yeah. oh my gosh um I love your husband's comment of the grief olympics I am gonna hang on to that I think that's such a great like just statement
1: yeah it really um cuts through and puts things in perspective um I use it all the time and it's so
0: helpful, um,
1: especially those moms. I keep thinking about that 19 week pregnancy mom. Uh,
0: Yeah. That's that's something I've said on this podcast too. Like we don't compare grief. Um, it's not like, and I think this can go for any other type of loss too, like not just baby loss, but if, you know, there's a group of people and they've all lost their parent to, a disease it's not like oh well this disease was worse or this amount of time you had was better or it's like no it's all awful and we can we can empathize with each other we don't have to compare
1: right and and when was the last time you heard anyone compare someone else's happiness such a <laughs> <That's> good point <laughs> you don't do that it's for, because it's ridiculous well it's the same for pain so yeah little piece that's really helpful. Yeah. I
0: love that. Um, before we finish up, are there any other, um, thoughts, any other messages that you would like to share with, um, anyone who would be listening to this podcast, either someone who is in the midst of grief or someone who is looking to help out a friend who is grieving?
1: Um, I think oh, something I would really want people to know is, be okay with getting it wrong. Be humble with being corrected. Um, when you make mistakes, at least you're trying. And, and that's the most important part. People can pick up on the effort that's being given versus saying or doing nothing because you don't want to offend. Um, yeah. I think that's the most important piece for people if you're wanting to support someone in loss.
0: Yeah. I think that's perfect. I totally agree. I think we've both felt, you know, what it's like to either have the grief ignored or the grief, um, you know, just brushed under the rug. And that's so much more painful than any time someone's told me something that hasn't been entirely helpful. It's like the effort is so much more appreciated.
1: You can feel the empathy. Yep.
0: yep. Absolutely.
1: And that counts for a lot.
0: It really does. Um, Danielle, where can everyone find you? Can you tell us about your Instagram?
1: Yeah, I have an Instagram. It's called the Invisible Mama. And Mama spelled with two M's. I, um, that name, that handle really kind of encompasses my experience where I very much so am a mother, but you can't see it. And, um, I also have a website called the and that's, I chronicle my, my journey. Um, there's lots of resources, local resources for people in the greater Bay area for therapy and support groups and all sorts of things. Um, so it's, it's a, a bit of a, a, source for people to use, um, when navigating grief, um, and yeah, I also have a little shop and all of the proceeds go to Star Legacy Foundation. So um, yeah, it's got a little bit of everything.
0: That's really cool. I'm going to check out that shop today. That makes me <laughs> really excited. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs>
1: Thanks. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's been fun. I mean, I've raised... I only started it in December, but a thousand dollars has gone wow. to our legacy. Yeah. yeah, just from people buying jewelry. That
0: <laughs> so, is super cool. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's it's something I'm really proud of. So,
0: that's awesome. I I love when people I love, I love stuff like that. It makes me really happy.
1: Yeah, oh, well, shining spot in the internet world.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, we need it. Danielle, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. I really appreciate it absolutely. It's been really um I wouldn't say fun, but it was fun
1: <laughs> to um just be able to share our story
0: yeah it's it's such a weird feeling. It's like, oh, it's enjoyable, but it also sucks that we have to do yeah. this,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's great that there's opportunities and I'll take it wherever I can.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you everyone so much for listening. I hope you were able to find some hope and familiarity in our words, um, to learn more about the podcast and to follow along on Instagram, you can visit us at morning dove pod. You can also visit me at Allie Rose Felker that's Felker with an F on Instagram And if you have a story or an insight that you would like to share, please shoot me an email. My email address is AllieRoseFelker at gmail.com. Thank you so much, everyone, and I hope you have a beautiful day.